Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Lara Chambaker, and I'm here with my co-host, Jeremy Wartsman. Hello. That was so deep. (laughs) (laughs) Here at Jackie Winter, our roles put us right in the center of the action, in between client and creative, so we get to see all sides of the process. But we want to see more. So this season, as you guys know by now, we're venturing outside our own industry to explore how others do it. Everything we see and do and use each day involves production. So together, we're going to find out what that looks like for different people and companies, making everything from video games to shoes, theater to software and all sorts of other stuff. Join us each week as we highlight a different industry alongside a very special guest. As always, it's an ongoing exploration of what the hell we're all doing and why and how we're doing it. This week, it's all about producing architecture, and I am delighted to say that we're joined by the excellent Imogen Puller. Imogen is an architect based right here in Melbourne. For the better part of a decade, she worked at Nest Architects, which is where we met her while she was working on our, uh, at the time, new Jackie Winter offices. So it's lovely to have her back here. There, she was running large-scale projects for government and educational institutions, as well as homes for private clients. Around three years ago, though, she became a mum and needing more flexibility in her life, she started her own solo practice. With a particular interest in housing and projects that nurture community and the environment, working on her own practice allows Imogen to focus on the things that are truly important to her, such as having an inclusive design process that broadens the accessibility of architects for all sorts of people, having an ethical approach to her designs, suppliers and materials to work towards a healthy future for the inhabitants and the world around us, and educating clients on the benefits of designing homes that fulfill those values. And something that struck me was how much this aligns with some of the things that Jackie Winter tries to do as well obviously in totally different ways. So Imogen, we're just so happy to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us in the Hotbox. Thanks for having me. <laughs> How's everyone going? Jeremy, it's up with you. Yeah, well, we, there was a public holiday yesterday and like I'm still reeling from a cafe that we went to and didn't get served for an hour and ended up leaving. And you know, like you had those kind of like experiences that just kind of like burn in your memory oh, for yeah. years. Yeah, so like I'm going to be thinking about that for at least kind of the next week. Well, I did yesterday and this is my fault entirely. I was supposed to have a doctor's appointment after the podcast today. And yesterday I was like, no, got too much work. I'm going to cancel it, reschedule it, whatever. And I called and it just went straight to like hold music, playing the same song over and over. I sat on hold for over 45 minutes and I was like, what is happening? Hung up, called back again, on hold another like 20 minutes. Thought, okay, I'll call their other practices on hold, on hold, on hold. And I was like, something must be wrong with their phones. I was trying to find an email. Could only found accounts payable. And I was like, what am I going to do? I'll just have to call them tomorrow. And I turned to Dan, my partner, and I said, oh, God, I've been trying to call these people for like an hour and a half now. And he's like, oh, weird. What's the doctor doing open on a public holiday? And I realized they're not open. And that's why I'd been on the phone for an hour and a half. I'm an idiot. Freelance life. I was when so bad. And public holidays just kind of had oh, no everything meaning. blurs into one. All right, guys, let's just get into it. Yes, I'm so excited to be here for this is our 99th episode. I, I think it's even more it. important than the 100th. It's like looking at that odometer just going to be kind of slowly ticking over. And I think it's so appropriate to have you here, Imogen. We're in your creation as such, um, wow. or, you know, part of it. Yes. And yeah, you know, we, as Laura mentioned, we did kind of work together on this office, uh, along with a fantastic team uh, at Nest at the time with um, Emilio and Anna and everyone else who is there. And yeah, since that, it was such an amazing experience. I, I talk about that so often here, like trying to apply 
applied, the kind of lessons that I learned personally as a client and the amazing parallels that you have in the architectural process. And, and we kind of since have taken that and tried to implement that in our own ways here at Jackie Winter. It was a real, it was a real seminal, wow, big experience. So, awesome. so happy to have you it's here today. on the podcast. So as we like to ask everyone who is sitting with us this season, just get us to the ground zero. Tell us a bit more about what you do and how you got into it. Ah, how do I get into it? Well, obviously, I mean, Laurie gave a very good intro into my background. I mean, I've only had one job in architecture since going out on my own, which was working at Nest Architects. So I really cut my teeth with Emilio there, learned everything that I knew. Before that, I obviously studied architecture at Melbourne Uni and I did some work experience with a big architecture firm, which was really kind of awful. (laughs) Uh, It made me, when I was studying, it made me feel like I wasn't sure if this is what I wanted to do. And so I took some time out to rethink things and ended up going to Denmark and studying at the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in the architecture school there, which completely changed my way of thinking about design and architecture. They really teach it in a different way where it's all very self-led, whereas I'd always been, you know, told this is how you're going to do it. And that was so refreshing. I came back, finished my degree. Of course, I wasn't that interested in going and working for a big firm again. So I ended up This is a weird anecdote, but I worked for one day in a cafe for a friend of mine in the city and I met Tim Fleming, who is now my fiancé, and we've been together for, I don't know, eight years or something. And he introduced me to Emilio and Emilio just needed help on a competition entry and I helped him out for a few hours and then (laughs) almost 10 years later I was like, okay, I think it's time for me to do my own thing now. (laughs) So that's really, yeah my background. I haven't had a lot of, I haven't worked in a lot of different firms. It's just been one experience, but it's been really great because I've been on ground zero from day one. So I've learned a lot. And what about the transition then from, you know, 10 years at Nest into having your own solo practice? Yeah, terrifying. (laughs) Absolutely terrifying. One of my goals for success is that I'm, I'm still doing it. It's, it was really hard. And I'd thought a lot about taking that leap And it wasn't until I was, you know, had Robin, my son, that I was like, I have to do this now. Mm. This is the point which I have to do this. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. I can go and get a job, but I'm still doing it. So... Congratulations. That's a huge feat in itself. As, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we all know. Well, yeah, a credit to, you know, the work that you and Emilio were doing um, at Ness. And, you know, that's how I initially kind of found you. I think, you know, we have, we have a lot of kind of mutual friends there. But mm-hmm. yeah, you were working on some amazing projects in Melbourne together. God, off the top of my head, what were the ones that I kind of I noticed? I think the one that I really loved was um the Marty's house. So the one you did for Marty McIntosh from Utra. Oh, yes. Yeah. And just like, and like, you know, because it's just like, I love that. I don't know. It just the kind of homes that you were doing and I really they just felt they had this amazing quality and I wanted to bring this approach of or one you know an office kind of feel like a home in a way so yeah I, I love that kind so of that connection we never leave. <laughs> well I'm here a lot so I want it to feel good I don't care about you guys but but that actually kind of brings me I guess to the meat of this which is kind of the process of you know how architecture kind of works and one of the things that I really loved I mean is I think on the early Nest website or the previous 
iteration, it kind of stepped out the process of kind of how the different things that you did. Because for me, like, you know, even though we're on the receiving end of, of having work commissioned, we manage kind of process with our own kind of artists and we have a bit of a system for it. I found like being on the other end and trying to research architecture, you see a lot of amazing pictures, but it's like, how does this actually kind of happen? And I love that you used language to step it out and actually explain the process a bit more, not only physically what happens, but you know, how fees are kind of calculated as well. So I really felt educated as kind of a client in that way. And, and I really kind of enjoyed that. So maybe you can just walk us through the process as you kind of developed it either at Nest or in your personal practice now. You know, what are those kind of milestones that are either standard in the industry or kind of specific to your own practice of start to finish? Okay, well, they're pretty standard across the industry, but we just put our own personal flair on each of the, the stages. So, of course, we start with the research stage and the concept design stage. So, essentially, that is we look at, obviously, there's a site where you're going to put this building or renovate, and we look at that in detail, analyze it, think about, you know, where what's its orientation, sun, breezes, what are the neighbouring conditions, that sort of thing. We also look at, you know, what are the planning restrictions on the site. So in a city, Melbourne, there's a lot of, you know, small workers' cottages that have heritage overlays. They're only five metres wide and 50 metre long blocks. It's, it's, it's really mm. it's a strange set of circumstances. Then we look at the brief and I like to go really deep with the clients and the brief. So, I don't know if you remember, we did a lot of chatting with you guys about, you know, your daily lives here, Jackie Winter, and how you use the spaces. And that was the most impressive part for me. I really, mm. like the more, most eye-opening part for me was how much thought went into how we actually use the space. And that seems really obvious, but as a non-architect, I kind of didn't think about how important those conversations are. Yeah, I think we can put our own spin on what we think would be a great way for you to work, but that's not necessarily going to be the best outcome for you guys and everyone's different. So every home, you know, there are some general principles that you follow, but everyone has a different way that they like to live in their home. And, you know, those initial brief conversations, I like to get really personal, you know, like, what do you do when you get up in the morning? You know, what do you do on holidays when, or when you're staying at home for the day? You know, where do you sit and, you know, what do you do and what do you want to do in the future? You know, they might have young kids at the moment that are going to grow into teenagers or, you know, potentially have parents who might come and stay later in life, that sort of thing. So making sure that we're looking at a house and it's how it's going to be used into the future and keeping that in mind when we're coming up with the, the design. Yeah, and for our office, of course, it was things like, well, we want somewhere to record the podcast or we may mm. have changing numbers of staff at times. We need an area for the gallery gals to do their cutting and production, all that stuff. And um, one thing I loved, I remember as well, was looking at like how many people might be in a space at any given time and how people actually, move, not just using it, but how they move through it and how to make Correct. that move. It was just yeah. really cool process. Yeah. I mean, it's the funnest part, really. <laughs> and then, of course, the third thing that we look at in that research um, stage is the budget, hey. <laughs> <laughs> where <laughs> all of the aspirations sort of like, yeah, <laughs> come down. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So now how do we balance those three things out, the site, the brief and the budget? And we usually look at a concept of maybe one, two or three options that sort of look at those competing issues. And one might be based more on the brief, one might be based more on the budget and maybe one in the middle that sort of kind of 
compromise on both sides and looks at something hopefully in the middle. So that's the first stage. And then sketch design is where we actually choose one of those and develop it into a full design outcome as a 3D model. And there's still lots of to and fro with the client. I really like to collaborate as much as possible. It's not my house. It's not my space. I want to make sure that that it's a it's a collaborative process. Mm, I was reading some quote the other day, something about like looking at branding and copywriting, but like it applies, I think, to any kind of commercially creative role, which yeah. is like about separating your tastes from the brand's needs or the yeah. client's needs, oh, you yes. know, and how important that is with copywriting, with anything, but particularly with, with architecture as well. I mean, they are employing you tricky. for your tastes in, to some extent, of course, but also it's not just about how would I want to use this. It's how are they going to get the best experience? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I found that in in our process of working together, the sketch design was probably the most most exciting for me, like to kind of start seeing the ideas come together. And it's also kind of really interesting because it's it's kind of like that's the one shot that you get where if the sketch design misses the mark, like it can really disrupt the relationship. Like I found that even with artists that I know who deliver amazing final artwork, if they can't communicate their ideas in mm. the sketch stage, that it can really throw things off and kind of erode that kind of trust. But the thing that I loved when you guys presented your sketches, how much all that kind of research that you did look into it kind of underpinned it and then how you, you tied it kind of into your sketches and explaining it. And I thought it was also interesting to see how you used your graphic sensibilities to display these different ideas. Like, like what Laura was saying before about how people kind of move throughout the space or kind of using different word clouds about the things that came up in our in your conversation. So like I felt that we, we were kind of really heard kind of in that way, which was a really great feeling to have as a client. But I also think then it plays into other things kind of like the budget, because I think we see all the time, you're always kind of like a bit cagey with budgets in those regards, because you're not really kind of sure what you're going to get. But yeah. I think what you kind of like presenting those three options was a really interesting part of the process because it actually got us excited about those things. And I was like, this is a great idea. I didn't even consider this was a possibility. I'm going to now not pay my staff for two weeks and afford <laughs> I, I, you But you're going to kind of like, you know, budgets are these mysterious things. They can always, you can always find money as a business owner if you kind of need to or change priorities. So I like the fact that it was something that kind of evolved in that way. So I, I think, yeah, even though this is kind of like an initial set of drawings and ideas before anything's been built, it's obviously, it's yeah, the, the most crucial. And so, yeah, I can see why it's enjoyable. So what happens after that? Like once a, once a kind of a direction is defined and you're moving on from the sketch design? Okay. So as well as coming up with the sketch design and making sure that that is going to suit the budget. And in that process, we also come up with like an overriding idea or a theme for the project. So that might be something like light and shadow or texture or solid and void or something like that. And it's quite conceptual. But what that does is actually help us design things more in detail down the track. And often we use that as a way of helping us, you know, that's the idea for the house. But then when you come down to the bathroom vanity, you know, do I just do a, you know, marble top and timber veneer drawers? Mm. Or should I come back to that theme of light and shadow and play with that idea with developing that particular detailed part of What's the project. The thing for our office? I can't remember. <sighs> I think it was definitely a playfulness or yeah. something Cheap like that. Cheap and cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So the next stage is looking at the detailed design and the the documentation, really, the drawings that the builder is going to price and build from. And we need lots of consultants at that stage. So depending on what the project is, we need a structural engineer 
to design the structure. We need an energy rater to help us come up with it, making sure that it's a minimum six-star house or building. And then... How many stars are there in the... Ten. System, they're ten. Okay, cool. Because I see that like this is six. I'm like, great, but out of what? You know, <laughs> out of six or out of sixty? <laughs> yeah. So, but six star is the minimum. Okay, gotcha. Allowed. I feel that's yeah. a real. That's really just the. Everyone knows it's only five stars. Where did right? the ten stars come it's from? It's super weird. So, because I hear six, and I think, oh, they got an they got an extra star. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now I realize they're four short. Yeah, exactly. This yeah. is huge news. We're okay. blowing this wide so open. So interesting, isn't it? And then a building surveyor who's going to give you a building permit to build the house. Oh, and I also forgot that you know, obviously, we need town planning for some projects as well. So. It's when all of the other so many people involved people become involved and I one of the ways that I've managed to streamline this process is just working with the same people creating mm. having really good relationships with people that I use all the time they know how I work I know how they work you know we understand each other we're you know quick to respond to one another and it makes the process so much oh, totally. easier and so Getting the documentation done is like a huge feat. Lots of drawings, um, lots of details. We also specify all the products that you have in the house. So all the external materials, internal materials, fixtures, fittings, that sort of thing. So that's also a, a big collaborative process with the client to make sure that they, you know, do they want brass tapware, black tapware? chrome tapware, mm. uh, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of decisions to be made. And in the end, we end up with a big package of drawings, which then can be priced by a builder and then built. From. And do you have to take the client through every single little decision that's been made then in terms of the, the look in the home? Because I think about like even just one room has, you've got the sort of the shape, you've got the finishes, you've got I don't know, all the little the fixtures. You've got the, are you taking people through or what type of sink is there? What type of whatever? Every single little decision and they're like okaying that or do you take some kind of liberty there to say like this fits? Depends on the client. Yeah, right. So I have a very detailed room by room brief that I give clients at, at the start mm. of de design development. So we've gone through all the concepts. We'll come up with a gorgeous, you know, 3D model of what the building's going to be and then I hit them with the, Excel spreadsheet, mm. which literally goes room by room about what do they want in each room. And then that's a really good way of telling how interested people are in making a decision about these things and not. Sometimes I'm, re I'm given back this Excel spreadsheet with only a few things filled in mm. and they're happy for me to make the other decisions. Other people have researched each product and want this exact thing. Fine. I can work in either way. So I make suggestions on what I think is good and then I let them percolate with the client and they can research them, come back to me and say, I found something else I like. So I like to make sure that everyone knows exactly what they're getting. I don't like surprises on site. Mm. When the client walks into their house and goes, what? Mm. But I want to avoid that at all costs. So potentially I give too much detail, but that's as a, as a way of making sure mm. that everyone has the opportunity to make a decision on on those things. I would be exactly the same if I were an architect and I would want that from my architect if I were to work with one ever. But yeah, 
I'm so, like overwhelmed by the number of decisions. That it's go into a this lot kind of, of decisions. And I have to make a lot of decisions on behalf of the client. So that's really why I like to completely understand where they're coming from and yeah, what totally. they want from the house so that I can make those decisions based on on that information. So then you've done these very the proper sort of blueprinty things and Correct. you've got builders quoting on them. Yep. What happens here? Okay, so we can do it a number of ways. We can either tender to a number of builders. So say three builders are quoting on it in a set amount of time and they come back with their prices and then we pick one. The other way of doing it is a negotiated tender where we negotiate with one builder and often you get really good, you get good outcomes when you do that because they suggest things that might be better way of doing thing or a cheaper way of doing things so that you could actually afford this other thing that you wanted. So, Jeremy, how much does that resonate with Jackie Winter stuff? Like when you've got multiple people pitching versus actually just negotiating properly with a supplier that you really Yes, it's trust. very nice when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just really like that. But, that, but I know but I know from experience as well, like seeing when, when I know when we put things out for tender for this office, it was amazing the variation that came back. Absolutely. And like you can tell like which builders were just like, I just need to put a price on this just to get it out of my inbox. And if I get it, I'm going to have a great Christmas, you know, <laughs> versus those who kind of really looked at everything. But yeah, it, and it's hard to know, yeah, which one of those people would have been willing to work with you on that. So yeah, no, that, I, I found that that's that was very illuminating. Absolutely. So yeah, what happens? after so you kind of go through that process and you select the builder you sign the contracts and then what then you start building <laughs> which is the really exciting <laughs> yeah. part so we wear two hats during this stage one we're still the agent of the client where we're you know helping them realize their dream home and then on the other side we're an independent mediator between the builder and the client helping to manage that relationship mm. to make sure that it stays positive and that we have the fixed price, fixed time contract remains, you know, mm. <laughs> fixed. fixed. <laughs> yes. And managing that can be quite challenging. I mean, this is when, you know, things can go wrong with usually when you're getting out, coming out of the ground. So if you're demolishing or excavating that's when things can start to go wrong because there's all of these latent conditions at the site that were unknown mm. and that's when things can get interesting. So I guess you, I'm really interested in how you manage budgets with architecture projects. Any really, any really large project where there's lots of moving parts, I think what overwhelms me is this idea of how do you actually, you know, you've got these early stages where you're defining a budget, but how on earth are you meant to know what those early stages exactly what that budget needs to cover. And it's not just the items, it's all the people that you're talking about that need to be involved. You've got the surveyors, you've got the whatever, all all yes. these different people. And so how are you actually kind of predicting that as accurately as possible and managing it as it shifts throughout with the client and with yourselves? So at the very beginning of the project, I ask the client what their budget is and I confirm if that includes consultants or not and GST or not. And I put together a bit of a spreadsheet that is based on previous projects. So if they've got a budget of 500000 I then break that up into, okay, 10% contingency mm -hmm. for the project, 10% GST, and then break up minus what I think the consultants are going to be as a guesstimate mm. and then that leaves you with what your construction budget is 
And then I usually design to that figure rather than the $500,000 yeah. figure. And then I have a, a bit of an understanding of what my projects are built for on a square meter rate base. Mm. And then that helps me figure out, okay, so if it's actually going to be a $400,000 budget, I know that the house can be this big. And so I design it to be that big. Mm. At the end of sketch design, I like to get a quantity surveyor on board to just give a cost plan, a preliminary cost plan that just checks that is going to be okay. And maybe you could just explain what a quantity yeah. surveyor does. So a quantity surveyor is a consultant who looks through the drawings and does a breakdown of what all the trades are going to cost and gives you an idea of what the construction's cost is going to be. Mm. And they're an independent consultant. They're not a builder. So they're looking at just the general, from a general point of view, what the cost of building this would be, whereas a builder's price is what they Mm. can do it for. So it's a really good test before you start that documentation phase to just clarify what the the budget actually is needs Mm. to be because you know you can have very unrealistic budgets and very big briefs and if I'm unsure that they can get what they want for their budget that's what I suggest and also I mean one small change would we talk about this with animation a lot how one little thing can that might seem like a simple part of a project can affect the budget in a huge way if it's changed. Like I imagine if someone changes the flooring from something that costs X amount per meter to something that costs XXXX amount per meter, Correct. that hugely shifts the budget. But the flooring is one small part of the project. And to me, that's what's so amazing is how you guys manage like, okay, someone decides they want this on the walls or they want this bath or whatever and how you then manage to adjust everything else to kind of accommodate. Yeah, that's the hardest part, the hardest part. And that's why it's really good to have negotiation with a single builder so that you can along the way discuss that, okay, we've got this $10,000 bath, you know, (laughs) what, what can we pull out to allow for that? And I think every decision that we make has the budget as part of that, that decision as well as the brief and the overriding theme and, you know, everything else that comes into it. We could have a whole separate discussion mm. on budget because, yeah, even the, I mean, from my understanding or knowledge, the, the ways that architecture firms price work is usually as a percentage of the construction fee as well. So it's this yes. interesting value-based pricing model that I really like kind of teasing apart. I can't um, think of any other industry that sort of does it quite that way, and I love it. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And but and again, one thing I think a big part about this is really just comes back to educating the client and setting expectations up front because you're working in this every day, but people might only build a house once in their lifetime if they're lucky. And I think one of the initial things that you did in the process that I really enjoyed was showing when you showed your folio, you actually kind of put the budget there as well of the project. And so yes. that kind of helps me understand. It's like, ooh, it's like, okay, when we're doing animation, for example, one of the first questions we ask is like, what is your ambition about this? Because you can animate something in 2D and still get the message across or you can do a 3d animation with original music and kind of all those things and the only difference in that you can get the same message across but the only difference is ambition or i I find that's kind of a good word to kind of explain that and i felt that once i kind of saw these projects and anchor them to you know the number that they took to build them that helped kind of set our own ambition kind of in that way and not go you know not go crazy, I hope. Anyway, <laughs> um, so so the building is happening. You are kind of, I mean, 
some architects go kind of on site. Some of them, you know, some things are happening kind of over email. There's obviously negotiation, firming things up when things kind of go wrong, and eventually the building is done, and that's it. Is that the end of the process? Um, for some, uh, <laughs> often at the end of the build, there's a some you know, post-occupancy services as well. So sometimes there's defects with the, the house or things that um, the client actually wants to do extra. And so there's usually some extra things that happen along the way as well. And, of course, for my own records, I like to take photographs of the house. I don't get to go there every day, unfortunately. So <laughs> It would be weird if you did. Oh, it would be. Um, sometimes I really want to, but, you know. Um, yeah, photographing the work is a big um, mm. project in itself. So, you know, there's styling involved and getting a photographer in for the day, and editing the photos, and then, yeah, marketing those that project um, with the photos. So at the end of the big project, there's another sort of... Would you guys do the styling or are you using things that are in the space that it the depends. client has like, yeah, totally. Depends I was wondering if you like come in with is. beautiful furniture stuff and then take it all out at the end of the day. It has happened. <laughs> yeah, some of our clients have really great stuff and often with styling photographs, the less is more. Mm. So it's, you're pulling out stuff rather than putting stuff in. Yeah, you don't want people's sort of too many family photos or whatever in the background. Yes. (laughs) So one thing um, that came up, I mean, after we worked together, um, Emilio and I were talking a lot about process and, you know, he was asking me about tools and kind of because through our process of getting to know each other, you know, I'd kind of talked about our process and kind of our tools. And I was a bit fascinated to hear that there weren't kind of specific tools, I guess, technically for architects to manage their work in that way and, and things. Or, I mean, there are kind of some things, but there, there's kind of no real elegant or standard solutions. And especially, yeah, if you're working kind of a big firm, you know, that's going to be a lot different to, in terms of how, in terms of kind of all those different steps in the areas that you have to cover. So obviously, there's a lot of spreadsheets that you were saying, kind of a lot of Excel things. But is there anything kind of specific that you've integrated now in your own practice in terms of keeping all of these kind of parties in contact? Or are there any kind of specific technological tools that you use in either that are kind of specific to kind of what you're doing or in the industry in general that you think other practitioners in other fields could benefit from? Oh, there's nothing specific. I use Dropbox a lot because it's really great for sharing files with other consultants and the clients so that they have, you know, access to all of the drawings throughout the process and quotes and thing and all of the spreadsheets, that sort of thing, so that they can contribute to those. I use Harvest as a mm. time tracking tool and a invoicing tool, which I find takes a lot of pressure off me. To, you know, as a, I've got a lot of things to do. I've got admin, I've got projects to do, as well as you know running the business. So that really takes the guesswork out of running the invoicing and bookkeeping side of things for me. I'm pretty lo-fi. I'm seeing so much interesting things happen in AR and VR, like especially when it comes to that expectation management, which, you know, you were mentioning or alluding to kind of, yeah, these potential conflicts that can happen on site. And I know from myself, when we were doing this, we we would kind of cut out, you know, models of desks to figure out like, oh, is this enough space kind of between people? Because it looks great on the plan, but, you know, what does it feel like in real life? So I know that in development, for example, VR is being huge because you can get that kind of spatial sense. Or I even saw this crazy thing, which is like you go into this warehouse 
warehouse and they project a big the, plan yeah big plan yeah like yeah. i thought that was amazing where basically yeah you kind of they project the floor plan over you Whoa. so you can actually kind of walk around and, that's and such see a good it. idea yeah, that's pretty fun how do you like i mean how do you your drawings are fantastic and i think in there obviously is a huge amount of technical work involved in making those drawings and communicating to that client, which you're skilled at. Have you ever kind of considered bringing these kind of more advanced kind of tools into your practice somehow? Or I would love to. At this point, I do walkthroughs through the model and a computer screen, which is mm. easily transferable to, you know, VR goggles to really feel the space. And yeah, I would definitely, if I feel the client needs that you know, needs extra help in understanding the the spatial awareness of what it's going to feel like in the space. I would definitely love to do something like that. I find that, you know, the projects that I'm working on are, you know, small to mid-level projects. The way that I'm communicating the drawings at the moment seems to be sufficient. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm not against going more technologically advanced. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I think, I mean, I've said this before, but one of the things we are finding out with these conversations in this season is potentially the room to develop some custom solutions to certain industries. Awesome. Um, and I'm working on it completely separate to this. I'm working on a freelance project at the moment, looking at different startups, but there, it's interesting. There are a couple of companies who are kind of targeting the, the building construction industry. And there was like one guy in particular, which is more targeted at builders than architects, but has built this kind of, it was through the process of building his own home, realized that the sort of process of record keeping and quoting and blah, blah, everything was kind of separate. Everything was just like really badly sort of mis, it was badly managed, not as through fault of the builder, but just there wasn't a system that was kind of industry standard. And that you could also bring customers into a blah, blah, blah. And so it's like develop this whole thing that's like meant to be this like custom CRM solution for this stuff. And then there's like companies like Foria who are doing exactly these kind of immersive real estate experiences to help people kind of sell in concepts and stuff. And so it definitely seems to be coming. It is. I think. Yeah. Yes. So, okay. I want to talk again, Jeremy and I's always favorite, our favorite section, which is talking about disaster stories. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> Look, we all have them, but they're all different and hopefully we learn something from them. So I want to hear about some of the main challenges. Obviously, you mentioned some before, but what are some of the main challenges that you have to work with as an architect and what do you do when your work goes wrong? So I guess, yeah, main challenges is managing the budget because mm. that can be, make or break a project. You know, if you design something that the client really loves, get it priced, it's double their budget like everybody mm. loses. I don't have a project anymore. Client doesn't have a project anymore. Builder doesn't have a project anymore. So I think managing that is a lot of what my job is about, um, which is not necessarily the fun part of architecture. So the other side that has a lot of disasters, <laughs> seems to have a lot of disasters, is the building side. Mm. It just... I've watched the block. <laughs> yeah, it's just... I feel like if we had, maybe we need VR goggles to look at skeletons of houses and into the ground or something so we could see if there's, you know, rocks in the ground or, mm. you know, rotten beans in the roof and things like that. So you want to, like x-ray vision. I want x-ray vision. I feel <laughs> like that things exist? Not really. Right. Maybe they do. I don't know. I maybe don't know. for like giant government engineering projects, whatever, yeah. but I don't know about home building. Who knows? Yeah. So someone get onto it. 
<laughs> I know. And, you know, you can go through this really long process with a client where you're, you know, talking about what floor finishes you want and what like really detailed parts of the project. And then you get on site and the builder goes to dig footings and they can't get into the ground. You know, there's a massive rock the size of a car into the ground and you completely have to scrap your floor, you know, your foundation, your footings and go back to the engineer and say, okay, we're not doing footings. We're doing a concrete slab. It's now going to be a polished concrete floor, not a timber floor. And it's going to cost 10 grand more. And, you know, that usually happens at the beginning of the project. So the client is, you know, literally nothing has happened so far and they've already been hit up for 10 grand more and completely changed their extension. But in the long run, in that particular example, at the end of the project, when we polished the floor, it happened to have river pebble aggregate mix Mm. in it, which meant that it had this really beautiful terrazzo look in the end and the clients loved it. Mm. So... I think you happy have to, accident. A happy accident. So you have to be really flexible, I think, when you get on site. So, you know, you might have this 30-page document of the building you're going to build. But once you get on site, you have to be able to roll with the punches and be flexible and be okay to change things. And I think, yeah, that is a hard lesson to learn. Yeah, totally. I'm going to ask you a frank question. Okay. Because I've watched a lot of grand designs. Okay. And... One thing I've noticed is that they always spend more than they set out to. Do these projects ever come in at the budget that they were planned to at the beginning? Or is that just the nature of I think you can answer your own question, though. I'm curious, though, but is that just like, you know, the way they're done on TV? Or is that (laughs) something that is just really common? Like they're always, you always end up kind of having to spend more because of these things that pop up. I think you always have to reevaluate how much you want to spend, Mm. how much you want to get. So you might have a really fixed budget and you can't go over that. Mm. So you have to compromise on what you want. Mm. And in the others, mostly what happens is people compromise on what they want to spend to get what they want. Rather than sacrificing the, yeah, Yeah. totally. So it's it's that balancing game. Yes. Yeah, I mean, amazing kind of takeaway and just setting expectations. Like, again, like oh, yeah. the cafe that I went to this weekend, like, I think I would have been fine waiting for an hour if they said, like, by the way, it was going to take an hour. And then, like, at least you can kind of know. Mm-hmm. And But, like, yeah, w- without knowing, that's kind of what always makes everything go wrong, I think. And especially, yeah, but w- with the whole idea of kind of not knowing what's underground, that's interesting because, yeah, that then there's this whole, like, how do you set expectations for the what is going to be completely unknown? Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about. But, look, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to pass on all your years of doing this in terms of things that you've learned about setting expectations or just, you know, producing kind of these projects, like these long, big projects. Um, yeah, any parting words of wisdom at all? Uh, I would say that it's all about relationships and having, you know, a positive process. So I've been doing this, oh my gosh, I don't even know how long, maybe 13, 14 years. And I've just built up relationships along the way and that makes my job so much easier and it means that the outcomes are so much better. If you're fighting or challenging, you know, people all the way along, you're not going to get a great outcome. So I think it's all about, yeah, the positive 
relationships. And does that mean saying no sometimes to either a client or a job that, you know, you can see red flags on? I'm really bad at saying no. I'm so bad at it because I, I see positivity in everything. You know, I get excited about a project before I've even like got it, you mm. know, uh, on in my office. So I think yes, but it does mean, I think it means always being, you know, holding true to yourself. If you don't want to do something, say why you don't want to do it that sort of thing. Imogen, I just want to give you such a huge thank you for joining us today. It was super, super interesting. Thank you for letting us pick your brains. And we absolutely love you and your work. So if others want to learn more about you and what it is that you do, where can they go? They could go to my website, imogenpuller.com. That's P-U-L-L-A-R, imogenpuller.com. Awesome. Everyone go there. Not right now, but in five minutes when the show ends. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Okay, before we go, here's what's been open in our tabs this week. And another reminder to get these links sent directly to your inbox. You can sign up to our newsletter by going to jwg.is slash newslettering. And Jeremy, I've been laughing so hard at your newsletters lately. So, oh, so much pressure. Like, it's, it's really so, hard to write. They're really funny. I'm glad you've got pressure on yourself. Or if you don't want to read Jeremy's pressure-filled, hilarious notes, you can head to our website, which is jackiewinter.givesyouthe.biz. All right, Jeremy, let's start with you. What's open in your tabs? Well, I was going to talk about my search for a bidet, um, oh. which is, yes, yeah, something that's happening, but maybe, maybe that. that's my own personal <laughs> podcast. But actually, I have a very relevant link, actually, because um, last week I finally got to see the film Everyone's Talking About Parasite. Have you seen it I yet? I haven't seen it. So the link here is about the house in Parasite. So it's um, there's this most of the film takes place inside this incredible house. And I thought it was an actual house that was in Korea, but actually it was a set. And so this is an article on IndieWire, the film site, which is titled Building the Parasite House, How Bong Joon-ho and His Team Make the Year's Best Set. I would suggest reading this after you've seen the film because, yeah, it puts it in a whole new light in a whole different context. But, oh, my God, it's it's amazing. And so, yeah, it's, it's you could almost say that the house and the architecture itself is one of the biggest kind of players and actors kind of in the film. So, yeah, highly recommend cool. both the film and the house. Very into this. Laura, yourself? Uh, I'm really boring this week, actually. I've been on a lot of deadlines, which has been you know, great to have the work, but also just obviously it's tricky to manage. and. I was kind of thinking about like time blocking and better ways to manage that. And then I came across a tool called Plan for exciting name, but it's just a, it's both an online platform and a desktop app or mobile app as well that kind of combines, I'm, I'm trying it out at the moment. It's only been like a week, so I can't give like a full breakdown of whether I love it yet or not, but I think I do. It kind of combines like my calendar and my Google Docs and my time blocking and my to-do list kind of all into one place. And so far, I really, really like it. I think it's a really clever app. And I'm really intrigued if anyone else is using it or thought about using it and what they thought. Where did you find it? Because this is actually come because I'm always looking at these apps. And this actually came up um, in a completely different venue that I was looking at. I was literally just looking at lists of like time blocking apps. That's it. I Googled like time blocking apps 2019 or something. (laughs) And uh, I read many different, I looked at many, many different options. And the other one, there was another one that I was looking at that is our stack, which is very much just to do with time blocking. But this was cool because it kind of, I was like, I use my wonder list. I use my calendar. If I can just have it in one space, it's really cool. And then I like that there's a tab where it's actually you connect it with your Google Drive and so like all my docs are in there as well. And as I'm like 
working on things or things are my to-do list, it can like tie directly to those docs and I can just go straight into it. It's pretty cool. And if anyone's looking for a new way to kind of manage their stuff, I suggest having a look. I'm on the free plan and it's, it's good. Awesome. So Imogen, what do you got open this week? <laughs> well, I'm about to do my Passive House Certified Designer course and Ooh. certification, which is a little bit scary because it's a lot of building physics. So I've had open Passivepedia, which is the Passive House <laughs> Wikipedia, <laughs> and I've just been cramming before I do the course, getting oh you know up on my building physics and things like that. So oh amazing. This is the first time I've even heard the term, so it's already opened me up to, yeah the the actual wikipedia page for passive housing which is super interesting yeah so check out passive housing i think it's the future it's all about airtight super insulative buildings that have really good indoor air quality and amazing minimize our energy use by 90 percent amazing wow i'm into this all right cool definitely going to check that out imogen thank you so much thank you to everybody that will do us for now I'm Lara Chambaker, he's Jeremy Wartsman, and this has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our theme music is by totally unrelated to our company, Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check his stuff out on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. And if you want more episodes, archives of all of our shows can be found at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. To receive beautiful artwork, the links to our open tabs and updates on all things Jackie Winter in one neat little weekly email package You can sign up to our newsletter that we already said is super, 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 super funny. No pressure, Jeremy. You can sign up there at jwg.is slash newslettering. You can also find us on Instagram via at Jackie Winter, and you can email us any love letters, hate mail, or general feedback at podcast at JackieWinter.com. I'm going to yell this at you guys every single week. We love hearing from you. Remember, this is also an enhanced podcast. So if you listen to this using Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Overcast, or Castro, you'll be able to see any relevant visual content as we rub it on and if you work for an advertising agency or design studio and you're interested in our live extended version of the show called open tabs be sure to check out opentabs.rodeo for more info thank you for listening catch you next week bye 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 all right let's do this guys Let's maybe re-record that. Yep. Yeah. Fuck you. All right. All right, guys. Let's just get into it then. One more time. Sorry, just without the laughter in the background. Yeah.